Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collisions YYC Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old-fashioned chat. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with Clearmotive Marketing. Thank you to my business partner, Chad Croker, and the entire team who worked tirelessly behind the scenes to make this show a reality. As a founding partner at Clearmotive, I'm excited to announce the official launch of our industrial marketing system. As a company with 15 plus years of experience with a variety of clients in nearly every sector, we identified that industrial manufacturing companies were underserved. You have unique needs, and we have developed a unique skill set to help you succeed. If you build and sell a product that helps other companies, we have developed an industrial marketing system to get your highest priority product in front of your ideal customer profile in less than eight weeks. Gardner recently reported that your buyers are 87% of the way through their buying process before contacting your company directly. That means it's never been more critical to apply the right marketing process to create and close more deals. Our three-stage industrial marketing system helps you shorten your sales cycle by using modern marketing tactics designed specifically for your industry and more importantly, for the way your clients like to buy. Stop sitting on the sidelines wondering which part of your marketing is working and put a system in place that makes it easy for your most valuable prospects to find you and get excited about your solution to their challenges. To find out more about what ClearMotive's industrial marketing system can do for you, please check us out at www.clearmotive.ca slash IMS, or better yet, open up your email and contact me directly at tyler at clearmotive.ca, T-Y-L-E-R. I'm excited to chat with you and put a plan in place to get your most valuable leads contacting you and not your competitors. Hello and a warm collisions YYC. Welcome to my returning guest, Mr. Jeff LaFrance. How are you, Jeff? I'm doing extremely well. How about yourself, Tyler? Oh, I'm fantastic. It's uh, This will be aired at probably Jan-Feb, but uh, we're a couple of days before Christmas. It's uh, things... Things are looking a little bit snowy out there, so and I know we're about to head into a deep freeze. So this will be well well after that. So you are my last uh, you're my last podcast of the year. So I think I think ideal in a few ways. One, we're going to have some really cool conversations about technology, which I always love geeking out with you a little bit. And uh, I think you were probably in my first twenty guests. Like I just hit two hundred the other day. So right. this is a big throwback. You and you and I, I think met well pre COVID. Our All first right. podcast, we were actually in in the room together. If you can if you can even imagine. I know. <laughs> Back in the Jeff, day, you are the. Yes, ba- yeah, ba- back in the day, it was probably a Wednesday. Uh, you are the president at VizWorks. So this is my new favorite. We just jumped into an elevator. Jeff, what's a VizWorks? What's it all about? Give me, give me, give me the elevator pitch. Uh, so VizWorks really focuses on addressing a, a big challenge everywhere in the world, which is the massive amounts of data and the, and the challenges people have of really understanding that data and turning it into something meaningful so they can make good decisions. Uh, we really focus on that human in the loop. Uh, which means we use a lot of advanced tech of various sorts, augmented virtual reality, complex data viz, artificial intelligence, kind of all the, you know, lovely jargony type stuff that's out there. But <laughs> yes, which we'll get yeah, into a little which, buzzword bingo afterwards. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, but really, the focus is on this whole idea of you know how do we enable that you know, the analysis, the presentation, and the decision making to be more robust and more appropriate to really make sure that people are successful in whatever they're trying to accomplish. Uh, we also, I appreciate it. So, oh, sorry, yeah, I was just saying, and, and, and as a result of that, we get involved in a lot of different businesses, a lot of different industries. That, uh, everything from energy, of course, locally here, energy is a big thing, but energy, construction, agriculture, healthcare, government, defense, aerospace, these are all industries that we've played in, uh, in, in various roles over the years that we've been around. In the, since even you and I chatted, has there been a leveling up in terms of, you know, I think, you know, I, we, I could probably go back. I didn't, I didn't do a pre-listen, mm. but talking about where different industries sit. And, you know, I think at that time you talked about the fact that eventually 
all industries will get to this point where they're looking at their data, looking at the questions and problems they're trying to solve, and then trying to create a link between the two. Is it become a little bit more like you just rhymed off a, a robust list in terms of different sectors? Is is this level of hey, we need to we need to be better with our data, we need to answer and solve bigger problems. Is that starting to become universally asked across different industries or do you see certain sectors that are a little more, maybe slightly ahead of the curve or slightly behind? Uh, well, and there's always differences between industries and their uptake and their, their attitude around it. Um, what I do say though, is that the global pandemic was really one of the major drivers towards an increased amount of digitalization, uh, particularly when you know, a lot of industries were pushed into the position where, oh, we have to have everybody working from home. They don't even have a laptop. They have no way to actually access anything. Uh, and so it changed people's perspective around the necessity of digital technologies as part of a normal business process. Uh, and it's played out in various ways, you know, from a fairly simplistic, okay, it's just an access process. We just need to give somebody a computer so they can access it from home to we actually need new digital tools to make them more efficient, more effective at the work that they're doing because they don't have the ability to come in and physically look at things or physically talk to people in person. Uh, so you know, even, the, even the podcast uh, you know, technology we're using right now, yeah. pre-COVID, it would have been an exception where somebody would use something like this, but uh, you know, COVID really forced this to become a mature tech. Well, and the exception becomes whether we're in the room together or not now. Well, and, and this is the thing that's been very interesting, right? Is that, uh, you know, we, we've gotten to the point where now online is the norm and a physical in-person meeting is the exception. And it causes all sorts of interesting challenges like, oh, I forgot to allow travel time between meetings because I'm not used to having to actually go someplace and meet with somebody in person. And, you know, all sorts of weird and wonderful things that we never thought about pre-COVID. But, if, you know, this is now the, the, ba the basic of putting on, putting on pants sometimes. Uh, well, yeah, for some. that's the joke anyways, <laughs> exactly. wearing pants right now. I want to be super clear, yeah, yeah. but you'll too. never know because I'm not going to stand up on this call. <laughs> um, no, it's so interesting. I've, I've, I've started to have that blended integrated world is really challenging mm -hmm. of like, oh shit, I've got to go to a lunch. I didn't leave any time to get there. I'm going to be 10 minutes late because exactly. I didn't factor it in. It's, it's just a time slot in my, so if you think about the first year of COVID as kind of like, we're all under fire, we're all, we're all kind of in it together organizations are, are running fast just to create access. I appreciate what you said. Like, let's start with the fundamentals. Oh shit. I can't even, that person can't even work because they can't bring their whole office home with them. How do we make that? But now we've moved through access. What I'm hearing you say, or what I'm interpreting is that that's created. And all of a sudden, have you seen a big increase in now companies going, okay, well we got access. Hmm, okay. I guess now we get it. There's no reason to kind of lag now. Let's start really looking at digital, digital transformation, or again, back to buzzwords in the rest of our organization. So have you seen like year one of COVID was access and getting like a different thinking of like, Oh, I guess this is possible. Have we moved into another cycle where now that that, bo that box is again, checked and always can be better. Mm -hmm. And now you see it going at a different pace. Did that really set the tone? And now year two has been a little bit more, let's look at organizational wide and business processes, workflows, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I would say, I mean, there's actually been a few phases within this whole pandemic. I mean, the first phase we saw was was really a retrenchment, a pullback, because a lot of organizations just didn't know yeah. what they needed to do. And so they were stuck in this, okay, we, we can't commit to anything until we can get our minds wrapped around what this means to us as an organization. Um, you know, everything from literally, okay, we need to buy a whole bunch of laptops because our people have no access to the the, the 
company. They can't physically come in. They can't access anything. Our business is stuck. So there's all that kind of requirement at the beginning. It was a major retrenchment. Then there was, okay, let's just, just get it working, as you say, right? Let's just get people access. Let's just enable people to actually be effective at whatever jobs that they're doing. Um, but as people started to realize that, well, you know what? We can actually be as productive online as we were physically in the office for the most part. Uh, let's see what else we can do with this. And so I would agree with you. We're starting to see more and more digital adoption and more and more utilization of digital tools. Uh, and the tools themselves have gotten better and better over time to the point at which, uh, you know, the things that may be a little bit glitchy initially because they weren't really designed for, you know, the millions of people all of a sudden who were deployed on these tools, these things have been addressed. And so now we have a system in which you can use a tool and generally speaking, rely on it being reliable uh, and effective for your right. particular business needs. Yeah, that first six to eight months, a lot of stuff was glitchy that all of a sudden now just works. Exactly. Um, not by accident, because there was a bunch of, of people running behind the scenes to make make that happen. To make, So they didn't lose market share and the other person who was making it happen would leap ahead of them. It was mm -hmm. an interesting world of the things as consumers or, you know, just as a user of technology that I just, I just expect it to quote unquote work. Exactly. When I, when I turn it on, I just want it to work. I don't really care why it doesn't. I just need it. To, I just need it. To yep. work. And I know your world and you said it earlier about just how do you take this huge amount of data and, and make it usable? I'm curious. There's so many companies and I know you work with larger organizations. We'll even talk about size and, and, and who's, who, who's, who's got an unfair advantage because of size and maybe not and what mm -hmm. that looks like. But are you seeing companies now just saying, well, geez, we've been collecting all this data for all these years, man, what, what, what can we use it for versus companies going, you know what, we need to solve a problem five years from now. Let's start correct, collecting the right data to solve that problem. Now. I'm just curious about a lot. I've heard is companies running to then go, geez, we've got this big pile of data that has not been maybe organized in an effective way. It's maybe corrupt in certain ways versus companies now that are getting a lot more deliberate about what happens in the future. And, you know, back to when's the best time to plant a tree 20 years ago, but if not 20 years ago, how about today? Yeah. So I'm curious where that cycles at with collection and creation of these data sets that are the backbone for all of these other technologies that, that we're going to talk about. Yeah. And, and there's no one answer, of course, you know, okay. it, not only is it somewhat industry dependent, but it's, it's right down to, you know, individual companies and their individual philosophies around this. Uh, so I wouldn't say that there's any, commonality between all of them other than kind of a general okay. recognition that digital information is more and more valuable and that organizations need to figure out a plan around better utilizing that uh, because if they don't their competitors will and uh, you know and, and this is the this is the reality you know the the pandemic if nothing else is really shone a spotlight on the globalization of the tech industry uh, and that's everything from, you know, the concepts you just talked about with regards to people recognizing, you know, the, the competitive nature of the data they have uh, or, or need to have. And and so the, the desire to better utilize or better acquire data that will enable them to better utilize data in the future. Uh, so, from competitors. so there's certainly the data aspect to that, but it's all the way down to the people themselves. You know, the, the industry right now is is. We run a software development company. So if you look at it from a software development company perspective, software developers are massively in demand everywhere in every industry. Uh, and there is an limited, well, very long. Uh, there was a very limited supply of um, people who can actually support the development needs of organizations uh, comparative to the amount of demand that's actually on, you know, for access to those people. 
So as a result of that, uh, we're finding that organizations are reaching out uh, beyond the borders of where they would classically reach, uh, you know, and, and COVID and the ability to uh, really you know, work within this environment uh, has enabled people from work from home to be able to work from anywhere. And, and the, the connection between where you work and where you live has been massively disconnected. Uh, and so now people can really live anywhere and work anywhere, and, and companies are taking advantage of that by searching and finding people all over the world uh, to try and fit their local needs for for development talent. Backing into you know the the backbone of this of this podcast, which is you know economic transformation in Calgary and you know ideally Alberta than Western Canada. Very quickly, how has that been for you? Just touching on that talent gap because. You're, you know, you're having this, these relationships with these large organizations, and I'm assuming there's points where they're just expecting that you have the manpower to get done the thing that they want to get done. How's that been for you guys over the last couple of years? It's just an, an endless part of your day is thinking about recruiting. <laughs> yeah, well, I wouldn't say my day in particular, but but as a company yeah. as a whole, absolutely. We we look at, you know, both the retention, which is the major thing you want to be focused mm. on, of course, is ensuring that you're retaining all the good people that you have, but also identifying new people that you can bring on board as you have more projects that need new people. Uh, we just, I think we're bringing on another two or three people, actually, uh, just over the holidays, we're hiring people, so there'll be some new people starting the new year. Uh, and that's directly related to just increased demand. And, and so we've been searching actively to try and that. Uh, but when but we're looking now, we're not looking, you know, just in Calgary, just in Alberta. Uh, we have BC. I don't know how many people we have in BC right now. But we have a few people in BC. We're, I know we we're looking at least for one or two people in Ontario. Uh, we already have two people in Brazil that are working for the company. I mean, we we really are looking anywhere within a reasonable time zone of here to hire people to to work in the company, uh, and that's the norm. When you start looking, yeah. When you start looking at we could do it on this rabbit hole all day. You start looking at that kind of recruiting and you look at the value proposition you need as an organization, you know, your employer brand, all the things that make up why someone in Brazil and someone in, you know, Ontario and someone in Alberta and someone in BC and someone where else would want to work for you. Does that value proposition, and I want to be careful because of course you're, you are who you are. So the value proposition of this is what makes us unique. I'm just curious what attracts somebody from Brazil to work for a company in Calgary. Maybe I'll just ask a pointed question rather than <laughs> philosophize on the question. <laughs> uh, so number of things, uh, you know, if we look at it classically pre COVID, uh, there was a lot of people who were very interested in the potential to move to Canada. And so you got a lot of very solid people who are amazing in their capabilities in other countries around the world who saw Canada as a very interesting country to move to. Okay. Uh, now, that's in the days when, you know, everybody wanted to be moved to an office. They needed to be in the same physical environment as everybody else. This, this current world where, you know, working from home is the norm. Uh, particularly for the software development kind of work that we do. Uh, the, the physical move to some other country is not necessarily the same reasoning that people would want to use to, to work for a company. Uh, in our case, uh, I think the primary draw is the kind of things that we do. We, we work on leading edge tech, um, the cool stuff, as, as you would go from a Kiki perspective. Uh, we work on problems that actually have real meaning, uh, you know, that really actually are, are improving people's lives. One of the projects we've been working on is with MDA and SFU out of Vancouver and, and supported by the Digital Supercluster. And this uh, 
in you know you may not realize it, but the illegal fishing market, uh, and I don't know the exact numbers, but it's something in the tens of billions of dollars of lost economic uh, value to the areas where these illegal fishing fleets are operating. Uh, it's also one of, if not the largest uh, source of uh, sl effectively slavery uh, in the world. Because uh, a lot of people on these illegal fishing boats are not necessarily there of their own free will. And so, you know, this is a massive challenge uh, globally. And, and we are fortunate enough to be working on a project that's trying to address this. Very interesting. I've recently done some work and done a partnership with International Justice Mission. And just to touch on it for a second, I, I had no idea the breadth and depth of the problem of global slavery. Like it's staggering. I, I yeah. didn't know that that was a problem in our lifetime. I think the stat that I got from the CEO that, oh yeah, I just turned the page. 40.3 million people globally are enslaved at this time. Uh, just to touch on like, and then, but she also talked about the role technology is playing to help identify this and to help streamline. So I think it's really interesting that, that you kind of, you brought that up up to kind of six or eight months ago. I didn't know slavery was really a thing I should be concerned about mm -hmm. as a citizen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's so interesting to hear that impact. That's interesting. It's, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a terrible, terrible thing that this still exists in our world today, but, uh, but it does. <laughs> Uh, and but the role, to your point, of that advanced technologies can play in creating, you know, just visibility around these things. Because again, if you can't, you can't fix this. You can't fix the secret if you don't know what's happening. It's hard to stop it, right? Exactly. <laughs> and if you can't track it and monitor it, yeah. So, if, and because I think you and you and I chatted, uh, I think it was a year ago. Last time you and I sat down for lunch, you guys were just kind of getting going on that project. So mm -hmm. that's continuing to be successful and continuing to be. Uh, that was something you were excited about, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's gone well. We're we're now coming to the end of that particular phase of the project and looking at it at the next phase and where we go from here with uh, with this team and actually expanding the team uh, more broadly into and a number of other groups that uh, could participate and support it. So. Uh, we'll see. Fingers crossed it'll proceed forward. But it's, uh, but it's, you know, it's one of these massive potential goods that uh, you know this kind of technology can really support. Uh, another one that we worked on yeah, helps people get their head wrapped around it too, right? Oh, this is just an obscure technology or a huge buzzword. It just oh, like, oh, VR, AR, data. What does it mean? <laughs> well, you know, you take another one that is a little more esoteric in some ways. But if you look at near Earth space, it's a bit of a mess right now. Uh, there are okay, well, right. so many. First of all, help me define help me define near Earth space before you go any further. Yeah, so um, if you think of uh, you know classic satellites that we see kind of buzzing over top space station, all these kind of things, they're in what we think of as near Earth space. Uh, okay. So above the ionosphere or intersecting with the ionosphere, uh, lower they they're called LEOs, low Earth orbit satellites. <laughs> Uh, these are kind of the, the realm of uh, near space. A little bit further out, you get into the geos, the, the geostationary satellites that are out there. Uh, and that's, that's and then there's, you know, a variety of things that occur in between. But if you look in kind of the, the near Earth space area, the LEO kind of level of space, uh, it's a mess. First of all, there's obviously all the, you know, all operational satellites that are out there and, and an increasing number of those as, as organizations put up you know, these constellations of satellites for, for various type of purposes from communications to observations to, to whatever. Uh, but then there is, you know, booster rockets from the early days in the space race, little pieces of just, rock. Just floating little, around, just floating around randomly out there. You know, if, I don't know the exact stats anymore, but if you look at, um, you know, five centimeter and above size, so basically this big and above size 
there's something like yeah. a quarter million objects in near Earth space. If you get down to the centimeter level, you're getting into the millions of objects in near Earth space. And every, any one of those things is essentially flying at the speed of a bullet. I was just going to say, those are a bunch of bullets that have that are never going to run out of energy and just keep moving around until they bump into something. Exactly. I mean, we had this on the space station <laughs> a couple of months ago. Um, there was an impact on the cannon arm on the space station. Fortunately, didn't damage the cannon arm, but they saw the hole through the cannon arm that was caused by whatever space debris hit it. Uh, but that's, you know. Basically a bullet hole. That's, that's a, a really good way to, that's a, it's yeah. exactly that, essentially a bullet hole. And so as a result of that, you know, if you look at nearer space, it is a bit of a mess and it's increasingly so. There was uh, just, just about a month ago, I think, uh, Russia launched a missile and took out one of its satellites uh, in the higher near. Oh, I remember space. that, and that, that was in the news for a day or two. Yeah. Oh, and you know, so it, it causes a debris cloud now that is going off in all sorts of directions, no, no control whatsoever, of course, of where the debris cloud's going. And because it was high enough in orbit that it um, that it caused uh, this. I would say this: if it's low enough in orbit, if you do something like that, it gets pulled down into the Earth's atmosphere and burnt up. If it's high enough in yep. orbit, it just becomes a debris cloud, which continues to propagate out, which is why the space station had to go down to emergency. Uh, you know, everybody had to basically get in the escape pods just in case something hit the, the space station. Well, because it's like you're flying through flak, right? If you want to think back to your World War II movies. That, and, <laughs> that yeah, except yeah. Flak, flak that can actually do major damage to you. Yeah, that, it, that, that doesn't decelerate. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, you know, so this is the nearer space. So anyway, so you look at that environment. Oh, this feels like a whole nother podcast oh, yeah, all to it's itself. We're, get, we're getting into Joe Rogan territory and maybe some Neil Grass, the grass Tyson territory now. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the, the, there's two things you need to really, you know, to manage this nearer space. Now you've got other factors in there like, oh, you know, there's, there's particular foreign nations that are actively putting together capabilities, both ground-based and satellite-based to take out other satellites. So, you know, yeah, well, for back, military to, back reasons, to the Star Wars program it, from the Reagan era, right? It's, it's crazy. Right? All this stuff is going on there. So, so there's a very keen interest in trying to understand what's going on in nearer space, monitoring what's going on in space, and then actively doing something about it. Uh, the actively doing thing about well, it's it. an interesting tie into the oceans, right? Of who owns what and whose territory is what and uh, how many yeah. things we still continue to dump in the ocean because, oh, it's big. It'll just go away. And all of a sudden you reach this point of like, no, we're having a negative impact here. Uh, I just, yeah. there's so many parallels in this conversation yeah, that I'm hearing. <laughs> So, so there's a lot of work going on right now in the monitoring side of it. There's a lot of work going on in the interdiction side of it. So there's, there's groups putting up satellites that are capture satellites. So they go out, they are trying to capture debris and pull it down into near Earth orbit. In, I, think now we're in, I think Moonraker now. Yeah, like that's a yeah, yeah. Episode. That kind of visualization. On. So we're pulling into all this. Sooner or later, it's going to come. Hollywood's always predicting the future. Yeah, no, it's, it's not quite Moonraker. They're, they're looking at things like nets <laughs> and harpoons and other kind of stuff. But uh but yeah, you know, it's well, we're gonna give him a break. That was a little bit. That was a few years it back. Was, but for yeah. all the James Bond fans, they're gonna be nodding right now. They'll get it. They'll get it. <laughs> well, and of course, they wanted to actually capture that one and bring it back to Earth versus just burn it up in the atmosphere, which is what the intent of most of these groups are. But uh, but yeah. So anyway, so we we actually uh, together with a group at the University of Calgary who works in the space environment research, so understanding near space, uh, the ionosphere, and things like that. We pitched to NATO back in June the ability to use this kind of advanced visualization stuff as a as a basically a space domain awareness system, uh, successfully so. And so we were one of the top three competitors in that particular initiative. And we're now in negotiations, well, 
very early stage negotiations with NATO. First stage of which is to get security clearances, which itself takes a year to year it's and a half. To even so. be allowed to have the, be be in the conversation. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. So, it's, so anyway, it'll take a while, but it's but it's interesting. You know, this this kind of tech has applications from space to to this, the oceans to our daily lives. Everything is impacted by this kind of digital tech. Well, and I appreciate the you know the the unique window you get to have of being in these conversations. And you and I chatted, early, you know, our first conversation about no, it start start with the problem. Okay, this you just you just identified the problem. Now let's bring all these other tools to bear. Where the media tends to just talk about these tools and not always tie them back to reality, like whether it's virtual reality. So maybe this is a good opportunity. Like, what is going on in the world of the buzzy the buzzy terms? You know, obviously, I know you spend a lot of time in virtual reality. You and I we did a project together, even unbeknownst to each other, at a period of time, yeah. and that was that was a few. It was like three four years ago mm-hmm. now that, that we did that of working for an oil and gas company in Calgary. They wanted to be able to provide their clients a visual experience to see what their well pad design would look like, and your team had done that and. Where are we at in that kind of a trend? Like, what are you seeing? And I think I've asked you this before, like, what's going to stay? What's going to go? What's going to change? You know, when it, whether it's VR, AR, and then maybe we can pivot into the, the metaverse and some Web3 stuff that <laughs> seems to be sure. just blowing up right now on every media channel you turn to, on, 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 certainly on YouTube anyways. Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I mean, so virtual reality, augmented reality, uh, extended reality, mixed reality, there's, there's, there's a myriad of terms being thrown around, which all have uh, various meetings and sometimes overlapping meetings, sometimes multiplicity of meetings. Uh, the essence of all of this essentially is how do we mix and better engage with digital information in a way that's human natural? Uh, this includes things like how do we visually engage with it? Um, there's a, all, a whole field of what's called haptics, which is how do we physically engage with uh, virtual things? Uh, this is, you know, everything from, you know, gloves that give you the sense of touch to full body suits that give you a sense of, you know, interacting in a physical space. Uh, there's, there's all sorts of interesting platforms that you can stand on and walk on that make you give you the I kind impression. Of forgot about that, ha- I kind of forgot about haptics. I haven't seen anything about that for a little while, oh, but there was, I, I'd run into that a few years ago and then I just, I don't see it as being talked about as much right now, but maybe it's just not, it's just because I'm not looking in the right place. Probably. Well, and, and the advances in the kind of immersive visual side of things has been going so fast that the haptics is mm-hmm. getting a little less attention right now, but it is still. But it makes sense. That's going to be trailing pretty quickly behind, right? It, well, for sure. I mean, you know, as an example, one of the things you put yourself in a virtual reality environment and you want to get the true sense of walking around while well, you're if you're tethered to a computer you can't really walk around very far yeah so there are there are, as example there's uh, some very interesting technologies around basically building a base on which you can walk and it makes you feel like you're walking because you are actually walking but you're not actually going anywhere yep. you're, you're just staying in one spot but it gives you the sense of walking around uh, and so, you know, this is kind like of a, a, three, a, a 1D, but yet 3D uh, treadmill platform, almost rollers, I, weird. Yeah, I'm exactly. just thinking about what would that, it's like those, uh, those skating applications where they kind of tether you in and you can be on that big skating treadmill. I'm yeah. thinking about things I've seen that are very analog uh, that tie into this world. Absolutely. And so that's, you know, if you really want to think about it from an immersive realities perspective, um, it goes beyond <laughs> just the visual. It gets into the full, you know, sensory interactions, which includes touch even, you know, potentially smell and so on there. <laughs> there was some, I don't know where that technology is at, but there was technology in the past they were working on, you know, smell or or whatever kind of thing. Of, you yeah, know, yeah, actually yeah, giving you sense that reflects and especially scent being such a powerful, uh, like, like the amount of the, what, what can be triggered from a smell, smell of apple pie, smell of like, Oh geez. Smell. Yeah. I think it was going up in Quebec. It was illegal to scent your store. 
uh, because it was shown to be able to trigger buying behavior. Oh, yeah. I just remember that from years ago. I don't know if that's still a thing, but that was, you know, it's a 30 year ago. Oh, thing for I sure. I mean, so interesting. So that, uh, you know, they, they would cook the apple pie in the oven, right? Or cookies or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Right. So absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. What was, what's old is new, but then how is technology going to play into that? So yeah. interesting. So things like haptics and uh, maybe not because it, things like the visual side have been advancing so quickly. Uh, interesting. Yeah. And, and so, and this is the, to me, this is one of the biggest trends that's continuing over the last few years. It's just the advances in the hardware for visual engagement is, is accelerating rapidly. Uh, capabilities that were, you know, not even technically feasible are now common in, in most virtual reality headsets, as an example. Uh, you know, the, the one big one, which we'll get to when we talk about the metaverse concept, is that you you actually have the ability now not only to present things to people, but more directly monitor how they engage with them uh, to the level of actually monitoring where you look. So what are your eyes looking at within this virtual environment? Like Hotjar watching where their mouse goes on the website. Yeah, exactly. But to, uh, to a much, much uh, deeper level than you can out of a you know a classic uh, environment. So... Um, so that so that's really interesting. Where you're now creating this two way flow of information to you know the, the 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 virtual reality world that you happen to be in. Now you as the individual with your goggles on, interacting in that world, and then the data flowing in that way. That's really interesting. That that you could that could feel scary really quick, couldn't it? Well, <laughs> well and then you get other things, right? There's a number of different groups, including uh, Elon Musk group, that are around brain monitoring, right, and trying to actually understand yeah. what your brain is thinking about. So when you when you think about the merger between monitoring your brain activity, uh, monitoring and then presenting information and being able to create that feedback loop around you know, how's the brain interacting and reacting to what's being presented to it. Uh, there was, I don't remember the exact app, but there was some interesting work done around this in the horror genre where they were trying to use this um, biofeedback to present I think it was a game, like a horror game, where they were trying to use biofeedback to present things at a level of fear that didn't push you over the edge, but really pushed you to the edge. Uh, and then using that feedback to really create the, you know, and ensure it was quote unquote safe. Of course. Come on again, we're using movie references, but this is Luke going into the cave, yeah. right? With Yoda, like, <laughs> come on, this is like, and how many, and how many sci-fis have we watched where whatever the challenge is that it will know what your deepest fear is and then present it to you. Yeah. You know, whatever you do, don't think of anything. And then the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man shows up. Anyway, sorry, there's so many Hollywood references to what we're talking about today. <laughs> Absolutely. But I mean, this is where the tech oh, is at, so right? So interesting. The, the horror genre is quite large in the in the VR space as well, isn't it? Uh, in the gaming side of it, for sure. Yeah, and the, sorry, yeah. in the gaming side specifically. Yeah, yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah. yeah, and then this is when- I'm not a horror guy, so I see it. I'm like, not a chance, I'm good. <laughs> but then I know other people, they're like, oh, I love it. It just like, because it, it, it pushes that stimulus button so hard yeah. for them as individuals. And yeah. that's- that's easy to chase that, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's the entertainment side of it. And this is where a lot of the tech yeah. is really drifting towards is, well, it's, it's kind of enabled is by supporting entertainment. Uh, you know, we as an organization are not in the entertainment business uh, in, in the sense that we don't create games or, or that kind of gaming content. But you're getting some of the benefits of the advancements based on companies pushing forward and monetizing in that way. Absolutely, mm -hmm. right. I mean, there's, there's literally billions of dollars spent every year advancing the tech in this space with the primary focus on the entertainment industry. And we get the benefits of that and use it for industrial and commercial purposes. 
well, it's such a mo- from a revenue perspective, and you look at like take a peer and whether you enter gaming or not into gaming, and you want to dismiss it. You can't deny the economic powerhouse that the gaming oh. industry is. It's it's insane. It's, it's like a next absolutely. It blows your mind when you start peeling back a few layers, like very quickly. Yeah. It makes other industries that you take for granted look pretty small pretty quickly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and then you know, and, like the, like oh yeah, yeah. It, well, it, you know, and you think about it. This is actually one of the interesting challenges we run into occasionally is the differentiation between organizations who are focused on content for immersive reality versus organizations who are focused on tools and applications. Uh, we sit okay. in the latter world. We, we build the tools to enable other people to utilize content, to build and utilize content. Uh, but we have projects that we're working on right now, one with the Calgary Fire Department around creating a training environment for community engagement to enable communities to better understand how to address a fire if they run into it in, you know, in their house or in their, their local community. Uh, multiple languages and so on. So it's really designed as a community engagement tool for the fire department. But it's we're working with another company, a partner company, Red Iron Labs, around the content side of it, and we're doing the application side of it. And and that's a really good merger okay, between two organizations that enable this kind of really great virtual environment for people. And that's is that is that are those kind of the two lanes, the content side and the and the tools and application side? If you really kind of were to split it down, yeah, there. I mean, it's it's it's. Blurry, of course, the line between the two of them. We deal with some content, and content companies deal with some apps. So there's kind of a blurry line in between the two of them. But, but yeah, but but it's a reasonable way to kind of look at the industry, you know, content versus applications. And obviously, and both need to need to advance at their own pace to be able to like one doesn't exist without the other. Absolutely. And and then of course is the hardware side, which is the third leg of the stool, (laughs) is all the different hardware advances that are going on. Augmented reality, mixed reality, it, it, you know, my mind, I can, I, I, I got an Oculus a while back just because I was like, hey, I want to play around in this world. And so now me and one of my buddies, once a week, we go do virtual gaming. We go, hey, what would we do if we were 12? So we go do that just to try to experience it. So I'm very familiar with VR from a gaming perspective. And obviously I've known some companies around town that have used it from a training and, you know, getting their, their teams prepped on large equipment and safety checks and things like that before going to the field. Augmented reality, where's how's that landed? Because I always thought it was cool. And when I've ever I experienced it, and I've you've showed it, I've experienced it with you. I just haven't run into it as much in quote unquote that my everyday life, where VR is something I can relate to a lot more readily. Mm. Well, I mean, a lot of people experienced augmented reality through Pokemon Go. Mm, right. You no. Know, so if you look at it in terms of a um an intersection or a life, there's actually been some pretty significant intersections to things like that. Uh, if you look at the, uh, I can't remember the name of the application that IKEA has, but this IKEA um, application that enables you to basically bring IKEA furniture into your home, to, to put, the, put the couch into your into your home. That's right. right? Okay. So you know, so there's there's a number of areas where this tech is really intersecting in the augmented reality space. Uh, but augmented reality, if you you know, if you look at it, it's really a spectrum. Everything from heads-up displays, that's augmented reality. You know, so your your ability to be sitting in your car and have this heads-up display show up, you know, how fast you're moving, what the temperature is, what the road conditions are, where you're supposed to turn, all those kind of things. That is kind of the one end of the spectrum of augmented reality, augmenting your okay. world with digital information that's kind of immersed into your world. Uh, the other end of the spectrum is when you get into things like immersive reality headsets, where your head becomes your ability to look around in an augmented world. And so it's really just overlaying digital information into the physical world around you. Uh, Which would be the Microsoft HoloLens would be an example. The HoloLens is a really good example of that. Yeah. There's been a few I used it a couple of years ago in a test environment and it was kind of, it was kind of glitchy, 
but when it, those few minutes that it did work, I, I, you know, all of a sudden I'm playing this game, but the, the, the spider is on the wall in the room. It was very interesting because it was as real as it was. You could see the difference, but your brain, again, that's the beauty of that. Your brain just accepts it and gets involved right away. Well, and this is where, um, what's referred to as mixed reality really starts to come into play. Mm -hmm. So augmented reality in the kind of the lower kind of aspects of augmented reality is really focused around just adding digital information into the physical world around you. Mixed reality is actually merging those two realities together. So, you know, from a, from an industrial perspective, imagine being able to walk around your facility and look at a boiler and have overlaid onto the boiler all the information about what's going on with that boiler, what its temperature is, where the fluid level is, what the fluid contents are, you know, the pressure in the vessel, all this kind of stuff overlaid right on the physical equipment, whatever it happens to be. Yep, yep. Uh, this is a true merge like, reality. Like, like having a, like having X-ray vision. Well, it, well, but it's an enhanced vision, right? Because it's not just looking at it yeah. through. I can see where the fluid level is, but you're now overlaying the all data. the information that's available about that particular vessel on the vessel itself, so that you can make contextually relevant decisions immediately. Uh, you know, the same thing applies to where some of the the advanced tech is going in this space, where you could be walking down the street and you know you think, oh, I'm really looking for pastrami sandwich today i really would love a pastrami sandwich you know where where's a restaurant that has pastrami sandwich and in your vision a, an arrow pops up over top of a restaurant saying well they've got a special pastrami sandwiches here today just like when i pay population one and they're like here's where your mission is and it gives you drops the arrow and then you take your your avatar and you run through the game to get exactly. there but now you're doing right. that on the street and, yeah. but you can you know and, and how, how far how far away is that how far away is that reality yeah. you got to be careful using the, i don't want to use the word reality loosely it's a pretty yeah, you it's, can get philosophical pretty quickly right <laughs> so it's if you think about it from the perspective of the hardware technology um the HoloLens, the, the version two, which is probably not the one you tried. I think you tried the version one, if I remember correctly. But yeah, it's probably two, three years ago. Yeah, so well, the, with COVID, it's probably four years ago. Yeah, well, yeah, I lost track of time. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> uh, the HoloLens version two, which is the current model that's in the marketplace, you could do that today with that kind of technology. Uh, now, it's not at a price but point. But that requires you to walk around wearing a HoloLens, right? It, it <laughs> does. So first of all, you know, that's a little bit of an odd thing, of course, except, you know, we got used to wearing masks now, so who knows? <laughs> Uh, Our ability to adapt as humans never underestimated. Yeah, exactly. It, so you know, so there's there is certainly that adaptability part of it, but it's also at a price point right now, which doesn't make sense. I mean, a, a HoloLens two is a you know, what a five thousand dollar Canadian uh, device, so it's not something uh, okay. that most consumers are going to be walking around with. Uh, but Apple yeah. right now is working very heavily, and they're not the only one. All Google's doing it as well. Facebook's doing it on the next generation augmented reality devices that they're going to produce. And so we, which is going to be a set of sungla sunglasses pretty quick. Right? Well, and this is where the expectation is. It's going to get down smaller and smaller to the point of where it, you know, could be the size of a pair of sunglasses, maybe a little bit more bulky than that, but at that kind of size range. And, and now you've got yeah. something that is consumer focused. So, so the HoloLens is really industrially commercially focused. Apple isn't necessarily, I mean, I'm sure there's uses in the industrial space for what they do, just like there is for anything else, but their focus is really consumers. And so they are going to produce a device which is very consumer oriented. And that means that the ability for people to start building and deploying those kind of applications within about a year, two years is probably there. 
Okay. Um, now there's and you've one, also got a brand that people are notoriously comfortable with. Yeah. You know, like I trust my Apple device. I know that I'm going to get a certain quality. So that barrier to also the risk of purchasing new tech goes down because the person I'm purchasing it from, they've built trust for me over the last 10 years, absolutely. 20 years. Mm. But there, there's, yeah, a, so there's a corresponding tech which also needs to be built out that correlates to this. And that's just, it's called various things, but you can think of it as world anchors. Uh, you basically need to create a mirror image of the physical world and the digital world so that when you mm. attach a digital information to a physical space, people can actually view it in that kind of merged reality. So, you know, as an example, I could, as a restaurant, I could say, we've got a special on pastrami sandwiches. Wonderful. Well, that information now has to be attached to a geospatial coordinate, a physical location in the planet, because that's where my restaurant happens to be located. Uh, mm -hmm. I then have to have the ability within an augmented reality device to attach and connect to that information and then figure out where that physical space is in the view of what I'm looking at right now. And then map that tag into that space in the view of what I'm looking at right now. So we basically have to map that geospatial coordinate into the virtual virtualized view that we're getting through an augmented reality environment so that we can actually see it overlaid. So we can see that, you know, pin, as you say, that says pastrami sandwiches on sale in our view yeah. right on top of that restaurant. So we know that's a restaurant that has it, not just kind of a menu showing, you know, this particular restaurant has a pastrami sandwich. Great. Well, now where is that restaurant? This actually has got to tag it into the actual physical space. It's virtualized through your particular device, whatever it happens to be. And is this a good segue into talking about the metaverse? Because it feels like there's some interesting parallels here. <laughs> yeah. to, you know, Because if I was in a full digital world, I could go buy a digital pastrami sandwich mm -hmm. in my metaverse universe, walking around with my avatar, with my crypto money and all those things. So, you know, that mixed use reality is an interesting concept when, you know, people, I find in my generation, like, oh, metaverse is digital. It's this worthless. It's not real. You can't touch it. I'm like, well, just be careful with that. But when I hear you talk more about this mixed reality, which I think is much more how, because we still live in the real world, but yet we have this whole other world we have access to now. Is that where, you know, maybe let's talk about the metaverse, like from a, what is it, which is, I think, a big tricky thing to define. So again, I'm going to make you the expert right now. So Jeff, what is the metaverse and how do these kind of concepts all kind of start to roll together here a little bit? Yeah. yeah. So there, there, <laughs> it's like, thanks. Yeah, thanks, thanks, thanks so thanks, much. Yeah, for right, that right, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, the metaverse has multiple different definitions of it uh, in terms of depending on who you talk with uh, about the metaverse. The concept essentially is this enhanced virtual world in which we as human beings can enter into and interact within it. Um, that virtual world is brought to us through various kinds of technologies like virtual reality and augmented reality and so on. Uh, but it is really a blending of a digital version of a world that could be a mirror image of our physical world, or it could be something completely different that doesn't look at all like our physical world. Um, yeah, there's uh, there was a movie from a few years ago called Ready Player One, which uh, yeah. You know, is really kind of a, an interesting depiction of a potential metaverse concept where people get into these full body suits and they essentially jump into this metaverse meta world and uh, become, you know, personifications within that metaverse meta world and, and interact with other people in that meta world. And some of those people are physical people that are just digitally present. Some of them are completely digital creations that don't exist anywhere outside of that world. Uh, you know, it, it's, it becomes... This, you know, this idea that the, the world is what we make out of it and our perception of the world defines the world for us, essentially. 
Okay. And so where, where are we on that journey? Cause it certainly seems like the buzz is getting turned up on these, on the, we're obviously Facebook's announcement. Yeah. We're now meta and these things, you know, and their purchase of Oculus a few years ago, it was, you know, you started to put a few of those pieces together, even as, as a, as an uneducated observer. Uh, but is it like, are we just in a big hype phase right now? And then it goes through kind of the chasm of, of death or all those, <laughs> those colorful words that get used around. Yeah, it's amazing. Oh, it failed to deliver. Oh, it's amazing. Again, failed to deliver. You know, I think AI, what AI has done that. How many times mm-hmm. since the fifties, I had someone lay that out, lay that out for me of how many times it was going to solve everything. And then just went, went, went away into the, yeah. the winter, winter of despair. So <laughs> is that where we're, is that what the metaverse is? Or is this digitization, this, uh, this willing for adoption and the rapid availability of, of tech and, and, and hardware, are we conspiring that this is going to happen faster or is it, uh, is it a bit of a hype cycle right now? Yeah. Well, so all the, all the concepts related to the metaverse have been around for a long time and have been progressing quite rapidly for a long time. Uh, Facebook's rebranding as meta really just brought it into the consumer focus and really raised the yeah. awareness of it more so. Um, so it's good in the one sense that people are now aware of the potential of, you know, the variety of things that are related to the metaverse uh, from the hardware to the software to the applications and so on that are related. But it also, as you say, is a bit of an overhyping challenge right now because it is so much a fad right now. There's so much attention being paid to it that, you know, things that were classically, I mean, just an example, right? We, we do a lot of mercy reality solutions for our clients. Well, are they now part of the metaverse? because we're using immersive tech yeah. you know where, where where's the boundary now it wasn't we never thought of it as a metaverse thing previously but based on the broad definition of what metaverse means to people we're creating virtual environments for people to go in and look at and, and evaluate the designs of buildings before they've ever been built no well, that's from most definitions not a metaverse it's a constrained piece of the metaverse but it yep. but it is nonetheless you know what people think of nowadays as a metaverse uh, and so, you know, so it's, it's, I think we're, we have a hype cycle we've got to go through on this where, you know, there's a lot of potential, but we've got to really narrow it down. Okay. What's reality and what's, you know, <laughs> reality, <laughs> uh, what's, what's real, what's, what's, a, you know, <laughs> I know that that's, a, we're going to do another podcast on reality dot, dot, yeah, dot. <laughs> what, what is reality these days? Um, and so I think there's, there's a lot of uh, work that needs to go into that, but but I also think we have some immense challenges ahead of us, and particularly because of groups like Facebook and and their past history. Uh, this it's yeah. amazingly, and this this comes back to something I mentioned earlier around you know the potential abilities to track people within you know their use of virtual reality technologies and you know and augmented reality technologies and so forth. Uh, you you know, think of it this way: is that you know, there's this old saying, "The eyes are the windows of the soul." If we can monitor what people are seeing, how they're looking at, how fast they glance at things. We actually get deep insight into human psychology. You know, do I spend a lot of time looking at bright colors or people or at, you know, particular, you know, parts of people or whatever that happens to be? Well, all of that now could be monitored through a virtual reality device because we can see exactly where your eyes are looking, what they're looking at within that world. We're kind of bolting you into an fMRI, fMRI machine showing you stimulus and watching what part of your brain lights up uh, like it's, to a certain extent. We are yeah. effectively doing exactly that. And you know so now that's you a go whole another le- that's a whole another level of I think uh, Yuval Harari has some interesting kind of tidbits where he talks about that where the algorithm will know 
your you know sexual preference before you do and how would we, do you want that presented to you in, in through media and and so he had his little talk where he kind of talked about that of like well let's just use one use case <laughs> about human sexuality he used as an mm. example which is something that i think gets everybody's attention or you know kind of puckers you up to listen when you hear a statement like that absolutely and you know and so you know you think about an organization like facebook who for good or for bad is really about getting access to people's data and leveraging that data to you know, sell them things that they think people are going to care about. So basically they're well, simultaneously promising you that they're not doing well. It. <laughs> <laughs> that anyway. Yeah. That's another story. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so if you look at them and his organization, now, well, think about the power you give to them. If you now allow them basically access right into your brain um, to know your deepest desires, to know your, your preferences, sexual, whatever preferences, um, you know, now, you know, give them that capability so that they can now e- even more directly target you with whatever it is that they want to target you with. Is that really a power we want to give a group like Facebook or Meta? As they call themselves well, the target use a kind word, influence, influence you, direct you, manipulate you. Those are the other words yeah. that, you know, targets almost the nicest well, word in enough. that state, yeah. in that statement. Uh, but that, but know, that's, this is where we get into the, it used to be just black helicopters and black SUVs and conspiracy theories. <laughs> now it's like, we're, we're plugging into the matrix to assert, wow, we got too many movie references today. I don't think I've ever referenced <laughs> this many films in a podcast ever before, <laughs> but this is the reality of, 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 again, back to the word reality now, uh, of what was science fiction is now becoming, you know, I'm going to go see the new matrix on Christmas day. So we'll see how that yeah. goes. But, uh, you know, that was what, that was 20 some years ago that that first 20, one came out. 22 versus, years ago, I think. Yeah. Is that what yeah. it is? 22. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. I, and uh, like how how yeah, you know, there was a lot of cool concepts at that time that are now all of a sudden we're bolting them on our heads willingly. Exactly. Well, and how did they get all those people into those in, plugged into the matrix in the first place? Somebody said yes, right? <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> that's another. That's a whole other. Yeah, if you want to get dystopian about this, you certainly have the potential yeah, yeah, totally. with the uh, the metaverse to essentially and 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 there's, and there's challenges with this, right? So think of it this way: there was one article I read just a couple of days ago it was talking about. So imagine you're in the metaverse and because you can, you know, you know, make yourself, you know, look however you want to look, you can, you know, make your environment look however you like. So like, I'm going to make a slightly better version of myself that looks a little bit nicer. That's got, you know, that six pack that I've always wanted to have. That, you mean, are you, are you talking about my Instagram profile? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Just to be clear. <laughs> so, you know, so you make a slightly better look, you know, version of yourself that's within that environment. Right. And then you live in an apartment in, a, in the virtual world. Well, it's a slightly better version of your apartment. And, And then, you know, so you basically create this idealized world to live in. And then you come out of the metaverse and you come back to your physical world and you look in the mirror and you say, well, you know, am I happy with myself? Um, Am I happy with where I live? And are we actually creating a massive psychological, you know, mental health issue by enabling this kind of capability for people? Uh, And so, you know, this is another part of the challenge we face is that the consequences of this are not just you know, are they going to gain insights to you? But we could actually directly and in, in, in positive or p- particularly negative ways impact people's human psychology and their mental health uh, by the way we enable things in the metaverse. Well, there's some very, um, you know, loud, uh, in, intelligent individuals talking about that we're, ar- we're already doing that with so- like social media is already oh, done. Whether it's it's just another girls, level now. Some of the yeah, some of the stats I've seen on that, like we're arguably, arguably we're already doing it now, but th- these applications and tools and content that we're talking about is just going to augment that. If it's a trend that's already happening with the the kind of almost analog tech we have, one dimensional in our hands, 
when you immerse your brain in, in, in virtual reality, it, it forgets where the boundaries are really quickly. But, for sure. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about it, you know, the, the current That's challenge we face is often one of uh, a me tooism. So, or FOMO, I guess is the you know terminology, because we see you know, these people that live these amazing lives that have these perfect you know hairstyles all the time, that are going on these vacations that we always dreamed about going on. We get so much of that kind of thrown at us in the social media environment that it makes our current lives kind of look a little tawdry and a little bit less exciting, and you know it causes mental health issues. So it's a I look at other people and I find I'm not as good as them kind of structure within the social environment. Yep. The metaverse takes that to the next level where I'm not even happy with myself and my own environment because I'm creating a virtual version of myself that's better than who I am. That's true. Because you know, to your point, we're now creating comparisons to the other where now the other is a different version of ourselves. Exactly. We find more fulfillment in something we fabricated versus the doldrums of the mirror. That's really interesting. So it's that, a whole that's, new that's level. Even more, that is so much more dangerous because how do you identify the villain anymore right. when it becomes you? Yep, <laughs> yep. exactly. Whew. Jeff, I knew we were going to have a good conversation. This has gone down some interesting twists and turns uh, in terms of, but, you know, and, and how like it, it feels like Pandora's box is already open though. You know, it's like in terms of like, it's hard to reverse this trend and momentum that we're on. <laughs> Sorry, I just had a rabbit from behind me. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy it. I didn't see it because your background is slightly blurry, yeah. but uh, <laughs> Jeff has a nice wooded batch in his background right now from, from our audience. Um, that's the real world outside your door. It's cold and it's wet and there's rabbits and trees and it's kind of dirty. Just to be clear, just so we identify yeah, what the real world exactly, actually yeah. is. <laughs> it's not a filter in your background. No, 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 for messy, sure. It's the messy outside and all its glory. Yeah. No, and, and so this you know, is- and, But there's the other, yeah, there's so many sides of this and people being able to not go on that vacation or, you know, I know that you're a, you know, a scuba diver and I might not be able to have that experience, but I swam with whales on VR the other day and I knew it was VR but you know, it gave me that experience. And so like, there's such an argument when used correctly, how powerful it can be when allowed to run rampant with our, in our thoughts and our, and, and rewiring our neural patterns. That's when it gets really scary pretty quickly as, as, especially when you're young, getting immersed and getting, when your brain is still developing, whew, man, you're letting somebody run around in there. Uh, maybe they shouldn't. <laughs> well, it, you know, we bring up the references to the matrix, right? But if you think about it, you know, what's a possible way that people eventually get to the point of, you know, disconnecting from the real world and just living in the virtual world? Well, it's exactly this. You know, yeah. they eventually decide that the virtual world is a much more interesting place for them to live. And so they they want tech that enables them to not ever having to leave that virtual world, that, uh, you know, their body's basically taken care of for them so that they don't need to do anything. It's very dystopian, but this is the tech that could eventually lead towards exactly that happening. Well, if you bolt, if you read the matrix and you go back and read a little Orwell and read a little, uh, brave new world and maybe throw in some Atlas shrugged on there too. And it gets a real, inter writes an interesting little paper of like, Hmm, what elements of that are actually going on right now? But you've got this force multiplier around technology and the blurring the line of what is reality that it's interesting. How can has an opportunity to augment some of these kind of abstract concepts that have been around forever, like since the thirties and forties, like the books we just referenced were all written in the forties, fifties, sixties, and you bolt them into today, but with this ability to accelerate it through technology and blurring the lines of quote unquote reality, it gets really interesting of who's out, who's at the wheel, mm -hmm. <laughs> who's driving Mark Zuckerberg. I don't know. I might, I might ask for a new driver. I don't know. Man, was, <laughs> let's not, we're not just going to pick someone and pick it. It's easy to pick a villain. Um, what about, and again, trying to pull us out of the philosophical side, just, you know, again, buzzword bingo, web, web, web 3.0, the world of NFTs, you know, mm -hmm. DAOs, blockchain, 
that all the things that I think are going to enable a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. Curious in your world, if you run into those or more just as a tech guy, they're just points of interest on the fringe for you. Uh, so we do, uh, you know, we do run into those for sure. The, uh, the whole idea of NFTs, uh, love them or hate them there, this really idea of putting value on digital objects. And, and what does that mean to put a value in a digital object, uh, particularly when, you know, the, the, one of the real strengths of digital objects is that they're so easy to duplicate. Uh, and right. so how do you put a value on a digital object? That's where, you know, the, the blockchain technologies around creating, a, you know, unique identifiers associated with an object. So, you know, it's the original, not a copy. All these kind of things become part of the, the requirement to, to make that work. And, and then the question comes, well, okay, what does that mean in practice? You know, if we have a full metaverse, a full virtual environment where we can live and breathe, so to speak, in uh, digital objects become actually quite relevant because we have to populate that world with digital objects. And some of those are going to be a digital painting that we bought, you know, an NFT of a particular digital painting. And that's the one that we're going to show on our wall in our virtual home. And, you know, these are the the kind of aspects of the implementation of this. Yeah, it's your th through. certificate of authenticity, right? That like, you don't have to look far from the art world to go, how is this even possible? Well, of course it's possible. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. Right. And so, you know, what is, what is, what does real mean becomes very blurry and, you know, what's the value of something becomes very questionable. Uh, and, you know, I, I look at the amount of money that's being spent on these NFTs and I, I kind of question why that makes sense. Uh, you know, from a pure economic perspective, the value just doesn't seem to be there. But from a well, societal well, I think, perspective, hey, pure pure economics—that might be your first error. Well, exactly. <laughs> but, but, that's, but that's my point, right? From a societal perspective, from a from a you know the rarity of an item perspective, that's why people will spend that kind of money on it. Yeah. <clears throat> so you know, it's it's not based upon economics. It's not based upon what makes necessarily a lot of in a normal economic perspective sense, but it is really about the rarity, the collection kind of capabilities, the, you know, this idea from a human nature is that we, you know, we, we look to the rare, we want to acquire the rare because that yes. somehow gives it additional value that it's rare. Yeah. And you're thinking about, you know, obviously the world of blockchain and all the things that are now enabling this to happen mm -hmm. <laughs> because your point, how do you maintain that value or how do you make it immutable or how do I not make a copy? Well, blockchain allows us to do that with this kind of immutable, you you can't you can't you can't fudge it basically. <laughs> sorry, NFT non fungible token. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Well, you know, that's yeah. Sorry, that wasn't intentional. <laughs> that was accidental. All right, but very appropriate. <laughs> but absolutely, eating just, some fudge yesterday. That's my story. Yeah. Um, so, and uh, when in the world of business, are you seeing that come up as a conversation? Because you're in there solving problems, and you know you positioned that to me early on when we met. Tyler, we have a whole suite of technologies, but until we really understand the problem, we don't even worry about that. We talk about the problem first. Are some of these solutions or some of these concepts? Are they starting to, are they going to, or have they going to start showing up as like, you know what, you've got this problem. Maybe some of this more fringe stuff right now is going to be quickly able to be brought into those commercial kind of tools and, and, and tactics. Well, absolutely. I mean, everything from one of our okay. clients client called Collection Science, uh, Peter Kurzakian's company. Uh, we've okay. created an advanced web environment, web and mobile environment for, for him to showcase not only his own artifacts and the stories that surround those artifacts, uh, but this is now a SaaS platform for other people to show off their own collections. Uh, it's an obvious potential oh, platform for... And when you say artifacts, are you talking physical world artifacts or NFTs? Um, so they classically have been physical world artifacts, but because they're presented okay. in the digital media, now they have a very easy transition into the NFT world. Interesting. Okay. 
Uh, there's the there's the real and the real kind of coming together, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, and so there so there are some very interesting possibilities around a variety of digital technologies where you know things that were maybe pushed towards a different application or different business reason can now be morphed in this you know NFT Web 3.0 type of world to be for something completely different. Uh, our our focus is on human engagement ultimately as a company, and NFTs are just another world of human engagement from our perspective. Well, you said human natural. You've said it a couple of times. And I remember back to our first chat, I don't remember you saying using that term. So I like the concept of human natural. And that's where the real creativity of how do you take these things and then make them quote unquote human natural. Mm -hmm. Is that a safe way to say that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, so if we look at uh, how to could explain it. So, you know, if we if we look at a, you know, pick a random equation of some sort. And I show you a lovely mathematical equation, you know, unless you happen to be a, a math whiz, you can look at that equation and go, whatever, what does it mean? Now, if that equation happens to represent a square, and I show you instead a square or a cube, and I show you, okay, here's a cube, and here's the equation that defines it, which one's more human natural? Which is the one that we more readily identify with and can more easily understand? Well, it's the, the visual presentation of that digital equation. The digital equation I'll take, has, what, I'll take what is it what is a cube for 400 yeah well, exactly right so you know yeah. the digital representation so the the <laughs> you know the mathematical representation has a specific need uh that's that for the people who need it that's the way they need to work live in the work in the world but the visual presentation is the thing that's more human natural it's more easy for people or easier for people to actually engage with uh, and especially and at, at a mass, at, at, at a larger scale, you've got the unique group of individuals that appreciate the formula to your point. But in my everyday use case for understanding uh, fishing challenges in international waters and those types of things, I just want to see the square so I can understand it. So then therefore I can use my expertise to make decisions. Absolutely. And, and so the closer you can present things to the way that human beings naturally interact with the world around them, the easier it is for our brain to process that and make good decisions around it. And is that the area where, you know, that gets me excited because I think we're doing a lot better at that than we were even a couple of years ago yeah. of making, of removing the, I was just, we onboarded a new, uh, a new uh, system to box technology and <clears throat> it was great. We were doing the onboarding and I was like, oh wow, it was so refreshing to see more of a unified user experience. So I was like, oh, this is just like three other platforms I use regularly, even though they're unrelated to each other. I'm like, it was so nice to see that the way you upload a file and the way you moved it and the way you named it was consistent across multiple platforms that had nothing to do with each other, like as corporations, as businesses. But for me as a user, I didn't have to learn a new thing where not that long ago, it felt like every time you'd bring something new into your organization, you had to you had to learn how to use the thing. Mm -hmm. Where well, I'm seeing more consistency now across the board, even at the simplest level. I'm like, oh, even the way I put the file into the system is the same as these three other programs I use for different outcomes, but that all have files involved. If that if that makes sense, it's kind of refreshing to go. Well, thank you for not having to me for making me be the expert on your specific application. You made it more universal. And that feel that felt that felt very nice as just a as a not a super user, but just as somebody who needs to use the thing to get the work done in the day that I've got to get done. Absolutely, and you know, and Apple as an organization was one of the first organizations that really, really focused on exactly that. Uh, right. You you never have a manual that shows up with your iPhone. My father in law, who's a 20, 30 year IT guy, said, "You know what? I got I'm excited. I got my first." 
my brother-in-law gave him his MacBook Air. And he's like, I got to really dig into it and figure out how to use it. I said, well, Trevor, once you've got that 10 minutes behind you, let me know what you think about the computer. <laughs> but coming from the world he comes from, of IT supported a big oil and gas company, he's like, oh, I got to really commit and sit down and spend days at it. I'm like, you're going to need to spend like 10 minutes and you're going to be good. <laughs> and then he kind of laughed at me. He's like, oh, I get it. You know, there was, was a dig in there somewhere about Microsoft versus Apple. Yeah, yeah. But it just, it's a completely different story, especially for someone who's expecting this level of complication that I just don't think is going to be there for him. <laughs> Well, and it depends on what you're trying to do with the tech, of course. Yeah, right? touche. So touché. if you really just want to be a user of the tech, uh, then you're right. You know, it, it's a fairly simple process now to be able to get up to speed and be a fairly efficient user of the tech uh, for things like that. And the Apple environment is one of those. Um, if you really do need to dig into the details of it, then it becomes a lot more complicated, of course. And then you do need yes. to have a lot of information around it. Uh, there's always a behind door number two. Yes, I'm speak, strictly speaking from a, from a user's a, a user's yeah, perspective. Yeah. Um, one last thing we'll maybe dive into a little bit here. Okay, I can keep going and just keep peppering you with acronyms, and then you can tell me what you think about them. Web Web three. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm doing some reading on that and seeing how they're all kind of tied together. But I, I'm finding it it's getting gets getting thrown around a lot. Where Web 3.0 versus 2.0. What are your thoughts on it in terms of like where you see it? Is it more of just a concept right now, or are we going to start to see as everyday users of the internet, being that it's such a huge part of all of our worlds, starting to see some really significant shifts that this next evolution is going to provide to us as, as, as individuals? Uh, so I, I do ultimately see the latter. Uh, the question okay. is more a matter of timeline versus potential. So the potential is there for okay. to really you know, evolve the web to a new level of engagement, new level of interaction. Uh, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done to get to there. And so there is still a lot of okay. fundamentals of what exactly is Web 3.0, what does it look like, how does it work, how, how are people going to engage with it, what kind of devices do you need to engage with it. I mean, there's a, there's a whole variety of things that still have to be worked out, but the concept uh, of moving you know, to the next level of engagement and, and in providing a, an even richer ability for people to understand information is great. Uh, the challenge, and, and the challenge with all these things, is that we're already overwhelmed with information today. And so, you know, one of the things that people have to really be conscious of with the Web 3.0 is that we don't create an environment, and yet we're, you know, we're overwhelmed with still more information and, and can't make any more sense out of it than we can with the current information. Right. So that ability to, yeah, it's the concierge's approach of like, don't give me, the, I can get information until my head explodes. Get me the information that matters most to me, which then circles back to, well, geez, if we know more, a little bit more about you, we yeah, can get you just those articles, sir. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a slippery slope. Oh, it is. It? <laughs> well, and this is, you know, and this is the, the whole thing that, um, you know, we, we didn't address when this stuff started becoming available, which is who owns the data. Mm. And companies took advantage of that because they're companies and they're trying they to find they, a business they, model. They built, they built business models around exactly. it. Exactly. And, and so, you know, so uh, now we've, you know, the, <laughs> as, as I think you talked about before, the genies out of the, out of the bottle, so to speak, we've gone down this path of data is just data and, you know, whoever gets access to it can do whatever they want with it. And we're starting to get some retrenchment on that now where people start to realize that, first of all, that data has a lot of power. And I'm not sure if I want to give you that power over me, because if you have that power, you can yeah. do things. Or if I do, I want, to be in control of my giving you that power. I don't want you to just take it and think that you have the right to it. Uh, but it's particularly in the way that the web works, it's not just that I give a little bit of data to this person, it's I give a little bit of data to this person, to that person, to that person, that organization, that organization, that organization, 
that individually doesn't make you know much of it an issue but if you combine that together it creates a picture of me that is something i perhaps wouldn't have wanted to let anybody know about and i have no control over that data anymore because of the you know individual you know i gave up my rights individually to these tiny little pieces of information yeah i gave away a bunch of pennies and now i want to go back and collect a dollar but i can't yeah mm -hmm. so you know so, I, so we do have a massive mm -hmm. opportunity and challenge with web 3.0 around this whole idea of data privacy and data ownership our governments and legislative bodies, like, I feel like there's the tech industry that's got its own, you know, just powerhouse of an ecosystem and it's way over here. And then you've got governments and, you know, centralized control that is just so out of sync with the scope of the problem or the ability to get the genie back in the bottle or at least, at least kind of put the genie through some sensitivity training maybe of, of what it's doing. But I don't know, is, is that, do we... <laughs> Do we need to look to these companies to do it for us? Because it feels like they're not going to because it's, it's, it's against their best interest as a business model versus expecting governments and regulators to do it where I've, anything I've read is those groups are so out of sync. They're not even speaking the same language. I, again, I don't know a lot about this area, just a little skim over it. It feels like it's so out of pace and one is so far ahead of the other that we're not, that it's, it's going to be really difficult to catch up to it. Mm -hmm. And it, you're absolutely right. You know, and then this becomes a question of, I mean, governments, by and large, well, who's in government? Uh, I mean, you look obviously at the elected members of government. They're not techies, by and large. There's exceptions to that, but by and large, they're not. Uh, they're politicians. Their 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 skill set is around getting elected. They're not necessarily skilled around you know developing <laughs> well digital technologies, right? And that's by their nature, by by being politicians. Sometimes not even running a country, but hey, let's not get well, into specifics. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, if you look Sorry, at Sorry, that was a cheap. I had to take a cheap shot in there somewhere. It's politics. <laughs> Let's not get too. But I mean, but, it, but not, this, my, not my area of expertise, but all of our area of angst. Oh, uh, well, and it is. And there are some notable exceptions to that. There's some people that I really respect in government who who seem to really get it. But but I'm, but if you look at the skill set of what it takes to get elected, that is not the skill set of what it takes to, you know, understand digital technologies per se. Right, it's around how to convince people that you're a person that they should trust. Uh, so it's it's not structured around the same ideas. So then, you know, how do they make good decisions? Well, hopefully, they have good advisors. Uh, those advisors are either through different committees they may structure, or through the bureaucracy itself of government, where they hire people who have knowledge who can really provide them with that good understanding of of what they need to make you know decisions on, or or try to you know get decisions made on. Uh, but that's it's a slow process, and uh, and I've seen this actually just recently in a one of the government agencies that we know. Uh, the hiring process to hire a, a software developer is something that probably takes about you know two, three, four months to go through the the normal vetting process and the hiring process and so on to to get a software developer. Uh, right now, in this in the tech industry in the software development world. If you take more than a week to make a decision on hiring somebody, you've lost them. Boom. They're gone. They're somewhere else. So who gets hired then by the government? It's not the leading edge developers oh, in the space, yeah, okay. right? Yeah. It's, you know, and this is, it's, it's somewhat recent, but it's, it's not, we really think about it. Um, so you've got people who want to go into government for other reasons. They feel like this is their way of contributing back to society. So they, they have other reasons that they go into government, perhaps, yep. than I want to be on the leading edge of tech. 
Um, and you, you potentially have a disconnect between their understanding and their ability to work within a, you know, an advanced uh, and, and rapidly advancing tech environment and understand the consequences of that from a, from a government and man, you know, management perspective, if you like. That's interesting. Yeah, if you want to be bleeding edge and be working on quote unquote cool stuff, probably getting a job with the government isn't the first thing that's going to come to your mind with the options you have now that there's no barriers to even geography. You can work for absolutely. You can work for the big. You can work. For, you can work in Silicon Valley and live in Calgary. Yeah, and there's a lot of people that do. In fact, yes, there's a lot. Yeah, of, yeah. yeah. Ma- making silicon and 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 making that wage too. There's some that, which I love that because that just puts more money into our ecosystem. Like there, there's pluses and minuses to all of it for sure. It, it is. There's yeah. One. And this is where we're we're seeing an interesting balancing point happening, though, because what we're finding is that a lot of the mm-hmm. the players in in the marketplaces where they paid top top dollars for the talent, they're coming in and trying to scoop up talent all over the place. Um, so they're pushing the market value up. On the other hand, we're starting to get some of the economies where the you know the, the amount you paid for a developer is actually quite low compared to even to Canada. Now competing globally and providing talent globally, and so their wages are probably starting to come up to meet more global standards. But are they in turn pulling the wages down of other places? Oh, interesting concept. Yeah, maybe a little bit more of a normalization. Uh, That's interesting. Um, It it hasn't played out quite yet. This is still a work in progress, but uh, but that potential certainly exists. Well, there is a normalization, and you, you were dealing with this. You know, look, look at just basic fact economics. There's a scarcity of people in those roles. All of a sudden, if you get access to a larger talent base, and the world skills up, and now you're getting you know developers from Romania or Brazil or wherever the case, and you're bringing their wage up, but you get more access, then that that they will normalize, right? That is the trend that yeah. you know th- that is still basic back to economics class, right? <laughs> we can still run that formula yep. against that, and that will still hold together. Yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. But again, again, we, uh, my crystal ball was a bit blurry and it's maybe some ice fog today. I can't necessarily see the future, but it's certainly exciting to, to chat about it. And as what's the joke, the future's here. It's just not evenly distributed. That's an old, that's an old, one. <laughs> it's from uh, the seventies yes. or eighties. True right? enough. That oh, line's yeah. from. Um, what's just high level. What, what's, what, what are you the most excited about in terms of like, when you look out to the next couple of years, cause you're in it, you're dealing with these things every day. And you know, obviously the last, since you and I even first chatted a couple of years has passed, are you, are you, are you, are we seeing a continued acceleration? Is there just technologies that you, you already see are there just getting more adoption? What, what kind of, what, what, what gets you up in the morning, Jeff? My passion. A five-year-old. Yeah, I know. Five-year-old, besides yeah. that, besides that, besides <laughs> a five-year-old. Uh, so, you know, what I really see is the potential for all these technologies to have a major positive impact on the human condition more broadly. Uh, the kind of things that we work on as an organization are really about improving the human space, uh, literally space, but also, you know, the, the, you know, we talked about this earlier, you know, the, the potential for you know, reducing the amount of slavery going on in the world. Uh, you know, the, small and large, we, we work with some very small organizations who are just getting started, who, who need a company that can help them develop new products uh, in their particular space. Um, they so we're helping them out, and that's helping their clients out. I mean, it's, it's really about enabling and, and using technology to enable progression and, and positive progression for for a large number of people and organizations. Um, that's what gets me up. You know, it's really this ability for us to to make the world a better place. Ultimately, uh, we use leading edge tech. Where you know, I'm excited about some of the the tech that's coming up and the potential for that tech. Um, I'm excited about the fact that. Stuff that we were evangelizing a couple of years ago is now mainstream terminology. Uh, right. So you know we don't have to evangelize it anymore. We just have to 
explain to people how they can benefit from it. Uh, so these are, you know, these are advancements within our understanding as a society of the potential of this tech, which is great. But uh, just curious to touch on that question, uh, is the cost for that? Like, you know, we did that project with you guys probably three, four years ago. Mm -hmm. We were going to repeat that without getting to the specifics for the audience. But if we were going to do a project like that. Would it be less now or significantly less now than it was then? How's that? How's that kind of playing out? Yeah, good question. So the, you know, as with all these things, you kind of have this balance point between expectations and reality. So <laughs> um, you know, I think that you summed up my life, but that's cool. <laughs> so, you know, what we expected to be able to achieve on that particular project and did achieve versus what we might expect to achieve on a project today might have shifted. Mm. And so, okay. you know, so if we're trying to do exactly the same thing we did, you know, a few years ago today, yeah, sure. There's probably some, you know, there's a number of tools we can utilize now and, and just the expertise that's been increased where it would be a little bit easier to build something like that at, at a more rapid pace. And we did actually build something kind of at a similar level for a client okay. uh, within a within a, like two, three weeks, I think, of work. We we're able to rebuild okay. something that's similar level of engagement with for a client. Uh, but now the expectations what I'm, heard, what are I'm hearing different. you say is though is for the same money, we could make something that was significantly a better experience exactly. than it was. So that's where a big, okay, that's interesting. So the ability to make it that much more immersive or quality experience for the, for the, for the user, the person who's now touring this well pad virtually with a headset on, that we can raise that game. So our money will get us more, yeah. not necessarily less. Okay, that's an interesting, that, which makes sense. We, we, can, we can do more because we know more. And yeah, it still costs money, but you're, you're going to give a way better end result to the, to the user. Well, and, and just, you know, if you look at the hardware that we used hmm. three years ago, whenever it was, when we were working on that. Yep. Yeah, three, four years. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I, know. Such I have a blur. no concept of time. It's, <laughs> Time is an abstract concept. I don't listen to uh, that. Let's not get into that. But yeah, uh, with COVID, so whatever it was that we did it, you know, a few years ago, we were doing it. That tech is obsolete by today's standards and that, because okay. of the hardware tech. The capabilities of the tech today in, in the virtual reality space is so much advanced over what that was then. Oh, cool. The resolution of what we can provide, so the immersiveness of the experience, the, the frame rates, which really drives our um, – one of the issues that virtual reality suffered from in the past was making people nauseous. Um, that's related to the uh, essentially the timing between our head movements and the update of the visual display. Mm, creates that inconsistency. Yeah. So any latency that exists between those two causes our eyes and our ears to get out of sync, um, which creates a, nause a nausea response, which uh, uh, actually physiologically is related to poison, but it's a whole different conversation around that. But uh, okay, well, there's another rabbit hole we don't oh, have time yeah, to go down. So anyway, like, what? Yeah, like, so yeah. It, it has to do with the way that our body reacts to poisons. We we start getting into disconnects between our eyes and ears and so on. And so we throw that up to try and throw up the poison. But um, today, you know, we see that. Interesting. Trying, you know, you try to get sea legs as an example or you, the older virtual yep. reality headsets. It was unfortunately all too common where people would start to feel nauseous within those environments. Um, it's not that it's eliminated completely now, but it's so, so much better than it was even just a few years ago. And so, um, and so that's another massive improvement. It's just the, the speed, the quality, the capability of these hardware devices on top of, you know, what we can do now from a software perspective that were, was more difficult perhaps to do back then. So, so the, the technology allows me to accept the matrix more readily. It, well, it, okay, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> It's a blurry reality and reality. Some blurry, some blurry. Lines Absolutely. No, I really like what you said about the ability to, you know, in, you know, 
use these technologies to have an augmented positive impact on humanity and, and you know, human natural, there's some interesting words that I, that you use today that I just haven't heard that way. Human natural, I, re I really like that and what it, what it represents because you're right. There's, you think of old technology, it just, it didn't, it didn't feel like an extension of ourselves. It was this clunky thing that you kind of, you know, where now it's becoming so much easier to adopt because even if I'm not a techie person, the more natural the experience is, the less foreign it feels to me to be like, oh, geez, you know, I'm not into that. I'm not a tech person. Yeah. We're all tech people as we have phones in our hands and computer screens in front of us. Like very few of us aren't tech in some way now. Exactly. Which, you know, I think when COVID started, oh my God, I'm not techie. I can't use Zoom. That excuse doesn't fly anymore. I'm like, come on, figure it out. You just got to figure it out. Well, <laughs> and they made those interfaces easier and those kind of things at the simplest level. Yeah. So Sate locally here is doing some very interesting work related to a broad uh, global work around something called digital intelligence. And I've had a conversation with uh, Lee Ackerman yes. about that. And he shared with me digital intelligence. Yeah. And that was the first time I'd heard it kind of laid out. And I, I really appreciated that perspective, you know, what it is to be a digital citizen and some of those concepts and also trying not to leave a whole generation of people behind on that journey. Exactly. So, so it is a, it is a very, very relevant thing that, uh, that we need to keep aware of as we build these technologies out. So many, uh, and, 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 and this is taking into consideration that there's no bad actors out there or anybody willing to use well, these technologies for ill-gotten gains, but unfortunately that's not the case, yeah. but it's, it's still buyer or maybe user beware. I will be, not to, not to put a little public service announcement at the end of yeah. this one. <laughs> if they've listened to us this long, they're in Jeff, they've committed, yeah, they've yeah, committed. Yeah, <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much for the, taking the time. Thanks for allowing me to make you my expert and just kind of pepper you with all the acronyms that I've been very curious about as of late. Um, obviously, you guys got a great website. I was checking out this morning. You've got a really, you did a good job of listing out all your projects, which some companies get so busy doing the projects, they don't list them out. You guys have a lot of cool stuff going on here. So that's my vizworks.com, uh, V-I-Z-W-O-R-X.com. Go check it out. If anybody wants to reach out to you or get in touch, any you want to put it out there is LinkedIn, email. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Uh, sure. LinkedIn is usually works really well. I've uh, got a profile on LinkedIn, Jeff, the friends, L-A-F-R-E-N-Z on LinkedIn. So yeah, please feel free to reach out and connect. Love to chat. Amazing. Jeff, thanks so much for the call. And uh, yeah, I'll see you. I'll see you again. Well, it's, it's, we have a trend now, so I'll see you again next year. We'll talk about what's happening <laughs> now. Good. Thanks very much, man. I enjoyed Thank it. You. Thank you. Cheers. Take care.